energy was so intoxicating that I just said, forget it. I'm going with this. I don't know where this is going, but I'm going. The tears started to come. I felt this huge opening in my heart. And it was that clarity. It was that feeling of revelation, setting aside any details or storylines. It was the feeling of revelation. It was the feeling of being face-to-face in my own body with my potential. Hey, I'm Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that bring us together and help us live healthy and purpose-filled lives. This is episode number 26. We've got half a year under our belt. In addition to being a podcast, Commune is also an online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers and thought leaders. Check us out at onecommune.com. At this very moment, your body is carrying out millions of subconscious processes. Every minute, you blink 15 to 20 times, your heart beats 60 to 100 times, and you take 12 to 20 breaths. That's the body on autopilot. But what happens when we consciously override these normally automatic actions? In particular, what happens when we exert conscious control over our breathing? Breathwork is an ancient practice used for thousands of years as an anchor for concentration and awareness. By altering, accelerating, and deepening our breath, we can access suppressed nonverbal memories and non-ordinary states of consciousness. We can access the tremendous dynamic stillness behind our thinking minds. Scott Schwank is a passionate champion for the power of breath and its potential to transform our quality of life. In today's episode, Scott shares insight from 25 years of teaching breathwork, and we learn some techniques for bringing conscious breath into our daily lives. So take a deep breath, and let's get started. I'm Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. Scott Schwenk, and I am a now 47-year-old man, and I work with myself and all people about waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up fully. One of the ways I do that is through my public classes. I teach meditation classes and breathwork classes exclusively at Wanderlust in Los Angeles and then online and around the world. And then in businesses, I do a bit of work with their cultures, helping their culture to upgrade to be really a fit for why they're in business and be able to deliver on those things. And then the deepest work I do is the private session work and retreat work. Mm -hmm. So one-on-one coaching or couples work. So I'm interested in breath work because this seems like a phenomenon now that's really just catching on and kind of sweeping over the nation. And it's obviously very related to yoga and to meditation. But I'm wondering at the core, how do you define conscious breathing? It's a really good question. I mean, just to take the words, I would say being conscious of breath, which is a struggle for a lot of people that I meet at first, to actually be conscious of how is my breath actually moving right now in this very moment. And for most people, that's a revelation that continues to reveal, oh my gosh, I hold my breath or I'm a really shallow breather. No wonder I'm tired. So starting there was just like, am I conscious with how breath is happening in my body? 
And, and the, I guess the moment that you actually become conscious of it, it gives you sort of an awareness of the miracle of being alive, right? Yeah. And that is a kind of enlightenment in and of itself, that we don't live with that kind of awareness every day all the time. It's so simple and so profound what you're pointing at. If the stages of enlightened awareness are the expansion of perspective in a real-time way, embodied, yeah. then absolutely to become aware. For example, there's an old tantric meditation where you just sit and have the awareness that your body is being breathed. You just relax and watch it happen. And in my experience and most people who've tried it, it's obvious. Like, I'm not doing that. Like, if I was responsible for beating my own heart, I'd probably be long dead by now. I would have forgotten. Like, oh, squirrel. <laughs> and this is pretty simple. Like, you don't need a lot of gear or you don't need to be any specific place. What do you need? Do you need a teacher? Do you need a method? I think it's ideal for a lot of things that can be so psychoactive to have somebody who knows what they're doing at least present in the room and introducing the practice. And in my experience, this will sound spiritual, but it, maybe it isn't. Everything in nature is learned through modeling. Like if a, a baby deer and a mother deer are out and about in a new territory, the baby deer, this is a study, will look up at the mom, is it okay to drink here? So at least mammals, from what I understand, learn everything through modeling. And we have these neurons head to toe called mirror neurons that can feel what another is feeling and even pick up on thoughts. So there's a solid argument to be made for learning something from somebody who already has it embodied. So I just spent some time in Portland, Oregon, with a friend, Brendan Burchard, who's a great personal development, personal growth teacher. And he shared with me one of the keys to bringing energy and generating energy because he's one of the most enthusiastic and energetic people I've ever met and all the time. And I'm like, how do you constantly bring that level of enthusiasm to every meeting, to every call, to every public performance? Don't you ever just kind of like wear out a little bit? And he said the key for him was like mini recovery. So, you know, he'll have a conference call or something, but he won't schedule it for an hour. He'll schedule it for like 52 minutes or something. So he'll give himself like two minutes before he goes into his next thing to really understand the energy and intention he wants to bring into that next episode. How does he want to make people feel? How does he feel? And he takes these little moments for what he calls micro-recovery. And he has his little technique. So I wonder if you might share with us kind of little techniques that people might be able to use for that micro recovery or in the middle of something that is stressful where you can actually then go into that next thing kind of at your highest self. Minimally, I practice this thing I call the six points of softening. And um, we go into greater detail about that in the, in the video course. I'm not a guy who does well with body scans because I'm a bit of a perfectionist and I'll stick in one in my shins and then start to drop into meditation and realize I didn't finish the whole scan. So my perfectionist kicks back in. And I remember sitting on my couch and going, 
F this, you've got to show me a better way to do this. This is ridiculous. And these six points literally lit up in my body to focus on softening and everything in between would soften, softening soles and palms. That's one pair. The other two are the four corners of the eyes, like just imagining them really softening, melting like butter on a hot day, along with the entire region inside and around the ears. And then add on softening the tongue as it rests in the floor of the mouth and all the little muscles leading into and throughout the pelvic floor, groin region, PC muscles, sphincter, all that stuff soft. Letting the breath come in deeper and go out longer. And as thoughts come up, have the feeling to exhale the energy of thinking itself as, long, as well as any tension you may be finding down into the earth where it can be composted and breathed back up as fresh life force. So the breath is coming in deep and it's going out long. Softening soles, palms, eyes, ears, tongue, pelvic floor, groin region. Each inhale receiving nourishment, each exhale releasing the energy of thinking itself and any tension you find. And just resting in that ever-growing sense of space opening up in and around the body. And then from here, to actually connect with a chosen feeling state. And if it's not readily showing up, to use a memory. You know, you're a dad. You could remember the birth of your children and the heart explosion, bigger than any romance one has ever felt. Let the memory of the children go and feel that feeling where it is in the body and let the breath come in and expand it. Make it up that it's easy to let it expand in and around all the cells of the body, even bouncing off the walls of the room. To continue softening soles, palms, eyes, ears, tongue, pelvic floor. Breath is flowing like water, deep and full without effort. And that's the simplicity of a basic reset practice and the doorway into effort-deepening meditation without grasping or chasing states. touched on some of the therapeutic ramifications of breathing consciously. But why do this? What are all the reasons? I think that that depends on the person. And for some people, it's not interesting yet. It's not relevant yet. And I think for a larger and growing swath of the population worldwide, especially at a time like now where there are so many things in question, the marketplace is in question, the, the governance systems around the world are in question. So when there are times of more turmoil, people tend to look to make meaning and look to find some degree of peace or some degree of happiness getting through the day. So the body's the first reality, and shifting the breath always shifts the life experience. I once upon a time came upon a group that teaches acting in England and particularly teaches these actors that every emotion has a correlate breathing pattern and you can reverse engineer. If you do the breathing pattern, it will evidence, it will show that emotion. It'll read on screen or in theater. 
But you can even just start to play and notice, try breathing really shallowly in this moment and notice, you know, within a minute, do it for a whole minute and notice how does that affect how you just feel, your sense of feeling. Do you feel really lit up and ready to conquer the world? Probably not. And then maybe do a different minute of inhaling deeply and exhaling long, fully, like the full extension of the lungs and see what that feels like. I know you also talk about the inner relationship between breathing and the vagus nerve. Can you just explain what is the vagus nerve and what role does it play in your body? Yeah. So it's called vagus because it looks like it wanders. It's not a straight line. And it comes down around the jawline, down through near the throat, down into the center of the chest, down towards the belly. It's one of 12 cranial nerves. It's the most important that we know of so far. It was only recently discovered in the last 10 years. So it's a new field of science and medicine that's growing. And the term toned up or toned down is how we talk about the vagus. When it's toned up, you're super resilient. Somebody looks at you funny, it's no big deal. Water off a duck's back. When it's toned down to the degree that it's toned down, you start looking at autoimmune issues coming online, um, challenges with mental disorders or emotional disorders. And we are all imprinted with the tone of our mother's vagus nerve at our own birth. That's the baseline we start with. We're not stuck there. And diaphragmatic breathing is one of the key things that will tone it up. You want to stimulate the vagus nerve. That's something you want to do, right? Yeah. In yeah. a positive way, in an upgrading way. And you can do that through breath work. Yep. Exposure to extreme cold is number one on most of the lists. Is that right? Uh-huh. Singing, singing, gargling, humming, or chanting, basically making sound in this region of the chest throat, which kind of, to me, explains music in any of the spiritual traditions that have music. Maybe it really has nothing to do with the words and everything to do with getting that vi vagus nerve to vibrate. Wow. Can you tell if someone has a toned up or toned down vagus nerve? <laughs> I feel like we can innately. Like, yeah. you know, have you ever gone to a party and there's somebody just, they're dressed to the nines, they're really beautiful or handsome in their own really obvious way, but there's a feeling that's repellent. Mm. I know I've, I've been that person at times when I felt really awkward and that awkwardness is like a repelling feeling. And then there's somebody, they might be dressed completely different than everybody else, maybe nothing really to write home about in terms of visualness, but there's something so drawing. Like I, I have to spend time around this person. Like I feel better about who I am around this person. This is how we can start to tell is the mirror neurons in your body do pick up what's going on with me. We get entrained in each other's kind of field as it were. Yeah. So I've also experienced, by coming to your class actually, that it is possible to access, I guess I would maybe call it non-ordinary states of consciousness by engaging in certain kinds of breath work. Is that correct? Absolutely. Especially rhythmic breathing and especially rhythmic breathing through the mouth. It's a shortcut to get that shift quicker. And can you describe that a little bit, the sort of narrative arc of one of your classes? So the beginning is getting in and really learning to relax the body up front that, you know, I, I have clients soften the soles of the feet and the palms of the hands is your number one job, not the breath. Breath is number two. You can get it going in a rhythm and not have to think about it. And it's better that you don't. 
but that softening of the soles and palms and have the feeling to let go of tension in the energy of thinking on every exhale out the soles and palms. That's the beginning. And you stay with that long enough, and then you start to hit maybe my fourth track on the song list, which you'll usually have some sort of evocative vocals or something like that, because that's the moment when the emotion that's been lodged can start to move. And lodged emotion isn't just challenging emotion. It could be happiness. You know, most of us, until we're not, are on a delay from when something happens to when we experience the emotion of it. In some cases, years or decades later. So the breath is the great truth serum, the great equalizer. And it, and it opens up what's actually here in the nervous system. And if I can stay with it, which I encourage people to do in the class, just stay with it. Just keep breathing. Don't make meaning of anything. Just let it move. Just let it move. Letting go on every exhale, receiving nourishment on every inhale, even if that's simply oxygen. So in that middle, the heart starts to open. And that's when the tears can flow. Uh, Also, that's when some of the old tension patterns, as they're releasing, can actually create movements in the body. And then about 20, 25 minutes in, at least the way I lead it, I have people shift over to a resting breath. And that's where the payoff is. I have so many people who come to my uh, sitting meditation class for the very first time of meditating and they don't know what they're looking for. So I tell them, come to breath work first because that quiet bit after the active breath work is going to reveal the space that deep meditation opens up for people who've been practicing for years and years and years. And then you're going to know on a feeling level without getting caught in your head what you're looking for. And just remembering that feeling is enough to bring it under the foreground of your experience walking down the street. Yeah. It's so funny. You pretty much verbatim just described the experience that I had in your class. I was gearing up to go to your class because a lot of people were telling me, like, you got to go experience Scott's class. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, it, it feels like you're totally stoned. And I know that more modern research around breath work has been around, like, the psychoactive you know, potential of breath work. And some of that work's been done by people that were super into LSD, but are trying to find some of the same, you know, introspection without actually having to to drug yourself um, to find it through a natural means. And so I came to the class and it was just like you said, for the first 20 minutes, I'm like, okay, well, this is relaxing, but yeah, I'm cool. I'm glad I'm here. But like, I don't know why people are saying, like, you know, (laughs) you're going to have some psychoactive experience because I just kind of feel pretty normal and, you know, relaxed. And then about 25, 30 minutes in, I had this kind of revelation. I'd started playing a lot of piano. And at the same time of also really going deep with Wayne Dyer, who's one of my favorite teachers, really speaks to me. And I had this sort of catharsis of like, oh, wait a minute, I see myself on the stage sort of channeling the philosophical thoughts of Wayne Dyer while playing piano in the middle of these kind of thoughts. And it all just kind of came to me in this absolutely clear way of like, this is my message to help people. And I, and I, I saw the interrelationship between the music and the idea of the infinite soul and losing your ego and all this stuff. And it was just incredibly cathartic. And I was like, wow, this is my purpose. And I started to cry. Yeah. I left class. I woke up the next day and I said, well, this is why they say you feel like you're stoned 
because that's the most ridiculous idea you've ever had in your life. But at the same time, even whether it's ridiculous or not, we'll never know. But it was tapping into a part of myself that felt absolutely clear. Well, and as somebody who's been exposed to some of your, you know, your life here in L.A., you did an event at Wanderlust Studio uh, after the 2016 election about the life in the the offerings of Obama right. put to music. So is it really so far off from something that already is germinated? Right. Maybe not. We don't know. We don't know. Maybe we'll find out. And we know you're a great piano player. <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there. The, when, what I've learned is you can get better at something even in your mid-40s. I sure hope so. Personally, Scott, how did you learn this practice? Why is it important to you? And why is it important you to teach it? Hmm. That's a great question. So it was about 15 years ago, I believe, May 19th, when I had my first private session with a fellow named David Elliott over in a hidden part of LA called Eagle Rock on a really nondescript neighborhood. And I went back into his little healing room. I was sent there by a business coach I had at the time who had vetted me long enough, decided she was going to send me to her healer. And um, I'm going to back up to actually the phone call I had when I made with him to look into going. And I said, what is it exactly you do? And I still hear his Kentucky accent. Exactly? Mm -hmm. There's nothing I can say that will ever satisfy that part of your brain. But I can tell you that two things we'll focus on if you come in. Getting you out of your head and into your heart. So cut to, and I had lived in a monastery, an ashram for the better part of three years, profound experiences there, tremendous energy. Nothing touched the experience that I had on that table that first time. We talked for a little bit. I got on the massage table, started doing the breathing. It was like lightning was coursing through my body, no kidding. Like somebody plugged me into the wall and 220 was flowing. I'd never felt that intensity of energy that profoundly. I went through some contraction, around intense contraction, like T-Rex arms in my hands, my mouth tensed up, and he didn't tell me that that might happen. So I do try and warn people about that, and that's a release. At the time, I was doing body work as I was assembling my toolkit, and I was afraid that my wrists were going to snap off and I would be broke the rest of my life, and I didn't know what I'd do for a living. But the energy was so intoxicating that I just said, forget it, I'm going with this. I don't know where this is going, but I'm going. The tears started to come. I felt this huge opening in my heart, and it was that clarity. It was that feeling of revelation, setting aside any details or storylines. It was the feeling of revelation. It was the feeling of being face-to-face in my own body with my potential. And I wouldn't have said it that way then, but it's definitely clear now. And I sat up from that, and I remember two things he said to me that were really important. He said, one, the breath is not the work. And he never said what the work was, and I'm really grateful. And then number two, he said, I'm looking for leaders, not followers, which I felt was really important because 
as I've seen over the years with thousands of people, the first person you do the breath work with, you imprint on in some way. Regardless of their character, you can imprint on them. And it's important to hold that carefully. That the breath is not the work, and he's looking for leaders, not followers. And I sat up and I said, I have to do this. It became a unifying thing between all these different modalities and trainings I had. It was a unifying force, a, a, an activity that I could take a client or a person through and address all sorts of life issues physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And then over the years of practicing myself, on myself, I've never had the same experience twice. And in the last year, I started doing it every day and again, in the morning, every day, whether I want to not, for 30 to 60 minutes in the morning. And I've learned so much about myself without having to sift through stories. I think that's one of the biggest gifts of working with breath is anything I could possibly have stuck is not about the story. It's the energy that's lodged in my nervous system that needs to get digested. And breath does that invariably. And so you found a way to be a teacher, to, to give, to help people, to help people de-stress, to clear trauma. But also you found a way to give this gift to yourself. Yeah. Where you can actually draw from it, not just have the energy going out. It's critical that I, I keep feeding myself. There's, um, there's an image in the tantric tradition of a goddess named Chinamasta. And if you don't know better, it looks like a gruesome image. She's severed her own head. She's holding it. And there her two devotees on either side of her. And there are three sprouts of, uh, sprouts of blood coming out of the neck. One going into her own head, the mouth of her own head. And then the other's going into her devotees. And there's a, for me, that talks about she's an image of a, of a teacher who can really help awaken energy in a person. Of a teacher who's being nourished as well as nourishing. That it's not enough to just give. If the giving doesn't include me, it's incomplete. And it's a form of grasping. So you're 47 today. What's your legacy? Love. My whole training in my life is learning and training and being able to come from a love that's not caused outwardly while still being totally playful and have fun and enjoy what's right in front of me. Mm -hmm. Well, just... Over the last three years, I've seen so many people walk out of your class and talk to hundreds more. And I am acutely aware of the impact that you're having on people's life. So God bless you for that, Scott. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for giving me a place to practice. There are many paths to healing, some more complex than others. But one of the most wonderful things about breathwork and meditation is that you already have everything that you need to give it a try. Thanks for listening to the Commune Podcast. If you enjoyed this or any of our other episodes, we'd love it if you could leave us a review. And if you haven't already, hit that subscribe button for new episodes every week. I'm Jeff Krasno, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.